Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everyone. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 247 of Forgotten Classics, where we will continue with The People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard. Usually, I'd stop for a podcast highlight right now, but I don't have a new podcast to talk about. So instead, I will tell you about three podcasts you already have heard me talk about a lot, but who have something interesting on them. First up is Revolutions. You know, that's the one that the former Rome podcast guy did, History of Rome, Mike Duncan. He has just begun his series on the American Revolution. It's an overview episode talking about how those colonies got started, what made them different from each other. Really a great overview. I can't wait for this series. The second one is Craftlit, where Heather Ordover has just begun North and South. As far as I've gleaned from people who have read it or seen the BBC adaptation, which I'm told is quite good, it is along the Pride and Prejudice lines of a sort of a book, though different. I'm looking forward to it. Elizabeth Gaskell wrote it. I've always meant to read one of her books. Charles Dickens was the first publisher of it in his monthly sequels. So this is interesting. The third one is that at A Good Story is Hard to Find, there is going to be a two-part series about Lord of the Rings. The first episode is up and ready to listen to. We had such a good time talking about this that we talked (laughs) for four hours. That's why it's in two parts. (laughs) I just thought, you know, I hate it when I see a four-hour podcast come up. I would rather have it broken up. So Scott very kindly did that. It's Scott me and Seth from SFF Audio. And the whole point of talking about it is not only to talk about reading the book, but to talk about the underpinnings that show J.R.R. Tolkien's Catholic worldview. We are not dwelling on the Catholic part a lot, but we're just talking about what we saw there. If you have ever wondered about that, how it is, for some people anyway, more than just a book, This might be a good place to get started and at least listen to a little to give you an idea. Now, The People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard. If we recall, and I bet we do because there's only been one episode with the first two chapters in it, Leonard and Tom Outram have been cast off by society. Their father went bankrupt, killed himself. They've lost their family home. Leonard lost his true love, and they've gone adventuring, sworn a blood oath to go to Africa, make their money back, buy the family name back, or at least redeem it from disgrace. So that's a really exciting start. We'll hear the next two chapters where we see what it's like in Africa. There are a few words used in there that are Afrikaans, if that's how you say it. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to butcher any of this stuff. I tried. Honestly, I did. But if I do, my apologies. I do have a link on the post for the podcast to an Afrikaans dictionary at Wikipedia. Wikipedia has a few questions about verifying things. (laughs) So I also did some cross-checking on these words around the internet. But that's at least a good place to start if you're curious. 
Let me speak for a moment about Afrikaans. It is an offshoot of Dutch, which was developed kind of as a common language between the Dutch who settled in South Africa and other parts of Africa and the native tribes there. According to this Wikipedia article, about 95% of it is words that were Dutch and have either been changed or adapted some. And then there are also some native African languages that have words in there too. So the words that we'll encounter tonight, wow, (laughs) W-O-W, really. And this one character says this word all the time. I couldn't find anything saying this was actually an Afrikaans word, but there was an article that I found that showed that that would kind of be added onto things for emphasis. Boss, B-A-A-S, is boss. You know, like the boss you work for. Kafir, a native African. That was the original meaning. It later came to be an insulting term. I can't tell if H. Ryder Haggard's using it as an insulting term. To me, it just meant Arabic-type servants. When I read the word, who knows? Krantz and Kloof. A krantz is a precipice, a sheer rock face, a kloof is a ravine. So, now let's get on with the story and see what it's like in Africa with the brothers. Let's dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. The People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 3. After Seven Years What is the time, Leonard? Eleven o'clock, Tom. Eleven already? I shall go at dawn, Leonard. You remember Johnson died at dawn and so did Askew. For heaven's sakes, don't talk like that, Tom. If you think you're going to die, you will die. The sick man laughed a ghost of a laugh. It was half a death rattle. It is no use talking, Leonard. I feel my life flaring and sinking like a dying fire. My mind is quite clear now, but I shall die at dawn for all that. The fever has burnt me up. Have I been raving, Leonard? A little, old fellow, answered Leonard. What about? Home, mostly, Tom. Home? We have done, Leonard. It is sold. How long have we been away now? Seven years. Seven years, yes. Do you remember how we said goodbye to the old place on that winter night after the auction? And do you remember what we resolved? Yes. Repeat it. We swore that we would seek wealth enough to buy Outram back till we won it or died and that we would never return to England until it was won. Then we sailed for Africa. For seven years we have done no more than earn a livelihood, much less a couple of hundred thousand pounds or so. Leonard. Yes, Tom. You are the sole heir to our oath now, and to the old name with it, or you will be in a few hours. (coughs) I have fulfilled my vow. I have sought till I died. You will take up the quest till you succeed or die. 
The struggle has been mine. May you live to win the star. You will persevere, will you not, Leonard? Yes, Tom, I will. Give me your hand on it, old fellow. Leonard Outram knelt down beside his dying brother, and they clasped each other's hands. Now, let me sleep a while. I am tired. Do not be afraid. I shall wake before the end. Hardly had the words passed his lips when his eyes closed and he sank into stupor or sleep. His brother Leonard sat down upon a rude seat improvised out of an empty gin case. Without, the tempest shrieked and howled. The great wind shook the kafir hut of grass and wattle, piercing it in a hundred places till the light of the lantern wavered within its glass and the sick man's hair was lifted from his clammy brow. From time to time, fierce squalls of rain fell like sheets of spray, and the water, penetrating the roof of grass, streamed to the earthen floor. Leonard crept on his hands and knees to the doorway of the hut, or rather to the low-arched opening which served as a doorway, and removing the board that secured it, looked out at the night. Their hut stood upon the ridge of a great mountain. Below was a sea of bush, and around it rose the fantastic shapes of other mountains. Black clouds drove across the dying moon, but occasionally she peeped out and showed the scene in all its vast solemnity and appalling solitude. Presently Leonard closed the opening of the doorway, and going back to his brother's side he gazed upon him earnestly. Many years of toil and privation had not robbed Thomas Outram's face of its singular beauty, or found power to mar its refinement. But death was written on it. Leonard sighed, then struck by a sudden thought, sought for and found a scrap of looking-glass. Holding it close to the light of the lantern, he examined the reflection of his own features. The glass mirrored a handsome, bearded man, dark, keen-eyed, like one who is always on the watch for danger, curly-haired and broad-shouldered, not very tall but having massive limbs and a form which showed strength in every movement. Though he was still young, there was little of youth left about the man. Clearly toil and struggle had done an evil work with him, aging his mind and hardening it, as they had hardened the strength and vigor of his body. The face was a good one, but most men would have preferred to see friendship shining in those piercing black eyes, rather than the light of enmity. Leonard was a bad enemy, and his long striving with the world sometimes led him to expect foes where they did not exist. Even now this thought was in his mind. He is dying, he said to himself as he laid down the glass with the care of a man who cannot afford to hazard a belonging, however trivial. And yet his face is not so changed as mine is. My God, he is dying. My brother, the only man, the only living creature I love in the world except one, perhaps, if indeed I love her still, everything is against us. I should say against me now, for I cannot count him. Our father was our first enemy. He brought us into the world, neglected us, squandered our patrimony, dishonored our name, and shot himself. And since then, what has it been but one continual fight against men and nature— even the rocks in which I dig are foes, victorious foes. 
and he glanced at his hands, scarred and made unshapely by labor. And the fever, that is a foe. Death is the only friend, but he won't shake hands with me. He takes my brother, whom I love, as he has taken the others, but me he leaves. Thus mused Leonard, sitting sullenly on the red box, his elbow on his knee, his rough hands held beneath his chin, pushing forward the thick black beard till it threw a huge shadow, angular and unnatural, onto the wall of the hut, while without the tempest now raved, now lulled, and now raved again. An hour, two, passed, and still he sat not moving, watching the face of the fever-stricken man that from time to time flushed and was troubled, then grew pale and still. It seemed to him, as though by some strange harmony of nature, the death-smitten blood was striving to keep pace with the beat of the storm, knowing that presently life and storm would pass together into the same domain of silence. At length Tom Outram opened his eyes and looked at him, but Leonard knew that he did not see him as he was. The dying eyes studied him indeed and were intelligent, but he could feel that they read something on his face that was not known to himself, nor could be visible to any other man, read it as though it were a writing. So strange was this scrutiny, so meaningless, and yet so full of a meaning which he could not grasp, that Leonard shrank beneath it. He spoke to his brother, but no answer came. Only the great hollow eyes read on in that book which was printed on his face, that book sealed to him, but to the dying man, an open writing. The sight of the act of death is always terrible. It is terrible to watch the latest wax and ebb of life, and with the intelligence to comprehend that these flickerings, this coming and this going, these sinkings and these last recoveries, are the trial flights of the animating and eternal principle. Call it soul or what you will before it trusts itself afar. Still more terrible is it under circumstances of physical and mental desolation, such as those present to Leonard Outram in that hour. But he had looked on death before, on death in many dreadful shapes, and yet he had never been so much afraid. What was it that his brother, or the spirit of his brother, read in his face? What learning had he gathered in that sleep of his, the last before the last. He could not tell. Now he longed to know. Now he was glad not to know. And now he strove to overcome his fears. My nerves are shattered, he said to himself. He is dying. How shall I bear to see him die? A gust of wind shook the hut, rending the thatch apart, and through the rent a little jet of rain fell upon his brother's forehead and down his pallid cheeks like tears. Then the strange, understanding look passed from the wide eyes, and once more they became human, and the lips were opened. "'Water!' they murmured. Leonard gave him to drink, with one hand holding the pannikin to his brother's mouth, and with the other supporting the dying head. Twice he gulped at it, then, with a brusque motion of his wasted arm, he knocked the cup aside, spilling the water on the earthen floor. "'Leonard,' he said, "'you will succeed.' "'Succeed in what, Tom?' "'You will get the money and Outram 
and found the family afresh. But you will not do it alone. A woman will help you. Then his mind wandered a little, and he muttered, How is Jane? Have you heard from Jane? Or some such words. At the mention of this name, Leonard's face softened, then once more grew hard and anxious. I have not heard of Jane for years, old fellow, he said. Probably she is dead or married. But I do not understand. Don't waste time, Leonard, Tom answered, rousing himself from his lethargy. Listen to me. I am going fast. You know dying men see far, sometimes. I dreamed it or read it in your face. I tell you, you will die at Outram. Stay here a while after I am dead. Stay a while, Leonard. He shrank back, exhausted, and at that moment a gust of wind, fiercer than any which had gone before, leapt down the mountain gorges, howling with all the voices of the storm. It caught the frail hut and shook it. A cobra, hidden in the thick thatch, awoke from its lethargy and fell with a soft thud to the floor not a foot from the face of the dying man, then erected himself and hissed aloud with flickering tongue and head, swollen by rage. Leonard started back and seized a crowbar which stood near, but before he could strike, the reptile sank down, and drawing its shining shape across his brother's forehead, once more vanished into the thatch. His eyes did not so much as close, though Leonard saw a momentary reflection of the bright scales and the dilated pupils, and shivered at this added terror shivered as though his own flesh had shrunk beneath the touch of those deadly coils. It was horrible that the snake should creep across his brother's face. It was still more horrible that his brother yet living should not understand the horror. It caused him to remember our invisible companion, that ancient enemy of mankind of whom the reptile is an accepted type. It made him think of that long sleep which the touch of such as this has no power to stir. Ah, now he was going. It was impossible to mistake that change, the last quick quiver of the blood followed by an ashen pallor, and the sob of the breath slowly lessening into silence. So the day had died last night with a little purpling of the sky, a little sobbing of the wind, then ashen nothingness and silence. But the silence was broken. The night had grown alive indeed, and with a fearful life. Hark how the storm yelled! Those blasts told of torment. That rain beat like tears. What if his brother... He did not dare to follow the thought home. Hark how the storm yelled! The very hut wrenched at its strong supports as though the hands of a hundred savage foes were dragging it. It lifted! By heaven, it was gone, gone, crashing down the rocks on the last hurricane blast of the tempest. And there above them lowered the sullen blue of the passing night flecked with the scudding clouds, and there in front of them to the east and between the mountains flared the splendors of the dawn. Something had struck Leonard heavily, so heavily that the blood ran down his face, yet he did not heed it. He scarcely felt it. He only clasped his brother in his arms, and for the first time for many years he kissed him on the brow, 
staining it with a wound from his blood. The dying man looked up. He saw the glory in the east. Now it ran along the mountainsides. Now it burned upon their summits. To each summit the pillar of flame, a peculiar splendor of its own diversely shaped. And now the shapes of fire leaped from earth to heaven, peopling the sky with light. The dull clouds caught the light, but they could not hold it all. Now it fell back to earth again, and the forests lifted their arms to greet it, and it shone upon the face of the waters. Thomas Outram saw, and staggering to his knees, he stretched out his arms toward the rising sun, muttering with his lips. Then he sank upon Leonard's breast, and presently all his story was told. Chapter 4 The Last Vigil For a while Leonard sat by the body of his brother. The daylight grew and gathered about him. The round ball of the sun appeared above the mountains. The storm was gone. Were it not for some broken fragments of the vanished hut, it would have been difficult to know even that it had been. Insects began to chirrup, lizards ran from the crevices of the rocks, Yonder, the rain-washed bud of a mountain lily opened before his eyes. Still Leonard sat on, his face stony with grief, till at length a shadow fell upon him from above. He looked up. It was cast by a vulture's wings as they hurried to the place of death. Grasping his loaded rifle, Leonard sprang to his feet. Nearer and nearer came the bird, wheeling above him in lessening circles. It forgot the presence of the living in its desire for the dead. Leonard lifted the rifle, aimed and fired. The report rang out clearly on the silent air, and was echoed from Krantz and Kloof and Mountainside, and from above answered the thud of the bullet. For a moment the smitten bird swayed upon its wide pinions. Then they seemed to crumple beneath its weight, and it fell heavily and lay flapping and striking at the stones with its strong beak. I also can kill, said Leonard to himself as he watched it die. Kill till you are killed. That is the law of life. Then he turned to the body of his brother and made it ready for burial as best he might, closing the eyes, tying up the chin with a band of twisted grass, and folding the thin, toil-worn hands upon the quiet heart. When all was finished, he paused from his dreadful task, and a thought struck him. "'Where are those Kaffirs?' he said aloud. The sound of his voice seemed to dull the edge of the solitude. "'The lazy hounds! They ought to have been up an hour ago. Hi! Otter! Otter!' The mountains echoed, "'Otter! Otter!' There was no other reply. Again he shouted without result. "'I don't like to leave it,' he said but I must go and see. And having covered the body with a red blanket to scare away the vultures, he started at a run round some projecting rocks that bordered the little plateau on which the hut had stood. Beyond them the plateau continued, and some fifty paces from the rocks was a hollow in the mountainside where a softer vein of stone had been eaten away by centuries of weather. It was here that the Kaffirs slept, four of them, and in front of this cave or grotto it was their custom to make a fire for cooking. But on that morning no fire was burning, and no Kaffirs were to be seen. 
still asleep, was Leonard's comment as he strode swiftly toward the cave. In another moment he was in it, shouting, Otter! Otter! and saluting with a vigorous kick a prostrate form, of which he could just see the outline. The form did not move, which was strange, for such a kick should have suffered to wake even the laziest Basuto from his soundest sleep. Leonard stopped to examine it, and the next moment started back violently, exclaiming, "'Good heavens! It is Cheat, and he is dead!' At this moment, a thick voice spoke from the corner of the cave in Dutch, the voice of Otter. "'I am here, boss, but I am tied. The boss must loosen me. I cannot stir.' Leonard advanced, striking a match as he came. Presently it burned up, and he saw the man Otter lying on his back, his legs and arm bound firmly with rimpus of hide, his face and his body a mass of contusions. Drawing his hunting knife, Leonard cut the rimpus and brought the man out from the cave, carrying rather than leading him. Otter was a knob-nosed Kaffir, that is, of the bastard Zulu race. The brothers had found him wandering about the country in a state of semi-starvation, and he had served them faithfully for some years. They had christened him Otter, his native patronymic being quite unpronounceable, because of his extraordinary skill in swimming, which almost equaled that of the animal after which he was named. In face the man was hideous, though his ugliness was not unpleasant, being due chiefly to a great development of his tribal feature, the nose, and in body who was misshapen to the verge of monstrosity. In fact, Otter was a dwarf, measuring little more than four feet in height. But what he lacked in height, he made up in breadth. It almost seemed as though, intended by nature to be a man of many inches, he had been compressed to his present dimensions by art. His vast chest and limbs, indicating strength nearly superhuman, his long iron arms and massive head all gave color to this idea. Otter had one redeeming feature, however, his eyes, that when visible, which at this moment was not the case, were large, steady, and like his skin, of a brilliant black. "'What has happened?' said Leonard, also speaking in Dutch. "'This, boss. Last night those three Basuto villains, your servants, made up their minds to desert. They told me nothing, and they were so cunning that, though I watched even their thoughts, I never guessed.' They knew better than to tell me, for I would have beaten them, yes, all. So they waited till I was sound asleep. Then came behind me, the three of them, and tied me fast that I should not hinder them, and that they might take away Boss Tom's gun which you lent me, and other things. Soon I found out their plans, and though I laughed in their faces, oh, my heart was black with rage. When the Basuto dogs had tied me, they mocked me, calling me foul names and saying I might stop and starve with the white fools my masters, who always dug for yellow iron and found so little being fools. Then they got together everything of value, yes, down to the kettle, and made ready to go, and each of them came and slapped me on the face, and one burnt me here upon the nose with a hot brand. All this I bore as a man must bear trouble which comes from disguise. But when Cheat took up Boss Tom's gun, and the others came with a ream to tie me to the rock, I could bear it no more. 
So I shouted aloud and drove at Cheat, who held the gun. Ah, if they had forgotten that my arms are strong, my head is stronger. Butting like a bull, I caught him fair in the middle, and his back was against the side of the cave. He made one noise, no more. He will never make another noise, for my head smashed him up inside and the rock hurt me through him. Then the other two hit me with carries, great blows, and my arms being tied, I could not defend myself, though I knew that they would soon kill me. So I just groaned and dropped down, pretending to be dead, just like a stink cat. At last, thinking they had finished me, the basudos ran away in a great hurry, for they feared lest you might hear the shouting and should come after them with rifles. They were so much afraid that they left the gun and most of the other things. After that, I fainted. It was silly. But those carries of theirs are rhinoceros horn. I should not have minded so much if they had been of wood. But the horn bites deep. That is all the story. It will please Boss Tom to know that I saved his gun. When he hears it, he will forget his sickness and say, Well done, Otter. Ha! Otter! Your head is hard. Make your heart hard also, said Leonard with a sad smile. Boss Tom is dead. He died at daybreak in my arms. The fever killed him as it killed the other Incusis, or chiefs. Otter heard and letting his bruised head fall upon his mighty chest remained for a while in silence. At length he lifted it and Leonard saw two tears wandering down the battered countenance. Wow, he said. Is it so? Oh, my father, you are dead. You who are brave like a lion and gentle as a girl. Yes, you are dead. My ears have heard it. And were it not for your brother, the boss Leonard, I think that I would kill myself and follow you. Wow, my father. Are you indeed dead who smiled upon me yesterday? Come, said Leonard. I dare not leave him long. And he went, Otter following him with a reeling gait, for he was weak from his injuries. Presently they reached the spot, and Otter saw that the hut was gone. Certainly, he said. Our bad spirits were abroad last night. Well... Next time it will be the turn of the good ones. Then he drew near to the corpse and saluted it with uplifted hand and voice. Chief and father, he said in Zulu, for Otter had wandered long and knew many tongues, but he loved the Zulu best of all. While you lived on the earth, you were a good man and brave, though somewhat quick of temper and quarrelsome like a woman. Now you have wearied of this world and flown away like an eagle toward the sun. And there where you live in the light of the sun, you will be braver and better yet, and become more patient, and not quarrel any more with those who are less clever than you. Chief and father, I salute you. May he whom you named the Otter serve you and the Inkosi, your brother, once more in the house of the great, great if one so ugly and misshapen can enter there. 
As for the Basuto dog whom I slew and who would have stolen your gun, I see now I killed him in a fortunate hour, that he might be the slave beneath your feet in the house of the great great. Ah, had I known, I would have sent a better man, for there as here cheat will still be cheat. Hail, my father, hail and farewell. Let your spirit watch over us and be gentle toward us who love you yet. And Otter turned away without further ado, and having washed his wounds, he set himself to the task of preparing such coarse food as they had in store. When it was ready, Leonard ate of it, and after he had finished eating, together they bore the body to the little cave for shelter. It was Leonard's purpose to bury his brother at sundown. He might not delay longer, but till then he would watch by him, keeping the last of many vigils. So all that remained of the Basuto cheat having been dragged forth and thrust unceremoniously into an ant-bear hole by Otter, who, while he disposed of the body, did not spare to taunt the spirit of his late treacherous foe. The corpse of Thomas Outram was laid in its place, and Leonard sat himself by its side in the gloom of the cave. About midday, Otter, who had been sleeping off his sorrows, physical and mental, came into the cavern. They were short of meat, he said, and with the leave of the boss, he would take the gun of the dead boss and try to shoot a buck. Leonard bade him go, but to be back by sundown, as he should require his help. Where shall we dig a hole, boss? asked the dwarf. One is dug, answered Leonard. He who is dead dug it himself, as the others did. We will bury him in the last pit he made looking for gold, to the right of where the hut stood. It is deep and ready. Yes, boss, a good place, though perhaps boss Tom would not have worked at it so strongly had he known. Wow! Who knows to what end he labors? But perchance it is a little near the Donga. Twice that hole has been flooded while boss Tom was digging in it. Then he would jump out, but now— I have settled it, said Leonard shortly. Go and be back half an hour before sundown at the latest. Stop. Bring some of those rock lilies, if you can. The boss was fond of them. The dwarf saluted and went. Ah, he said to himself as he waddled down the hill where he hoped to find game. Ah, you do not fear men dead or living overmuch. Yet, Otter, it is true that you were better here in the sun, though the sun is hot, than yonder in the cave. Say, Otter, why does Boss Tom look so awful now that he is dead, he who was so gentle while he yet lived? Cheat did not look awful, only uglier. But then you killed Cheat, and the heavens killed Boss Tom, and set their own seal upon him. And what will Boss Leonard do now that his brother is dead, and the Basudos have run away? Go on digging for the yellow iron which is so hard to find, and of which, when it is found, no man can even make a spear? Nay, what is that to you, Otter? What the boss does, you do, and here be the spore of an impala buck. Otter was right. The day was fearfully hot. It was summer in East Africa or rather autumn, the season of fever, thunder, and rain, 
a time that none who valued their lives would care to spend in those latitudes, searching for gold with poor food and but little shelter. But men who seek their fortunes are not chary of hazarding their own lives or those of others. They become fatalists, not avowedly, perhaps, but unconsciously. Those who are destined to die must die, they think. The others will live. And after all, it does not matter greatly what they do, for as they know well, the world will never miss them. When Leonard Outram, his brother, and two companions in adventure heard from the natives that at a particular spot in the mountains, nominally in the Portuguese territory near the lowest branch of the Zambezi, gold could be dug out like iron ore. And when, at the price of two tower muskets and a half-bred greyhound, they received a concession from the actual chief of that territory to dig up and possess the gold without let or hindrance from any person whatsoever, they did not postpone their undertaking because the country was fever-stricken and the unhealthy season drew on. In the first place, their resources were not great at that moment, and in the second, they feared lest some other enterprising person, with three tower muskets and two greyhounds, should persuade the chief to rescind their concession in his favor. So they journeyed laboriously to the place of hidden wealth, and with the help of such native labor as they could gather, began their search. At first they were moderately successful. Indeed, whenever they dug, they found color, and once or twice stumbled upon pockets of nuggets. Their hopes ran high. But presently one of the four, Askew by name, sickened and died of fever. They buried him and persevered with varying luck. Then a second member of their party, Johnson, was taken ill. He lingered for a month and died also. After this, Leonard was for abandoning the enterprise. But as fate would have it, on the day following Johnson's death, they found gold in very promising quantities and his brother, whose desire to win the wealth necessary was only increased by many disappointments, would not listen to such advice. So they rebuilt the hut on a higher and healthier spot and stayed. But on one unfortunate day, Thomas Outram went out shooting, and losing his path in the bush was forced to spend a night in the fever fog. A week afterward, he complained of sickness and pains in the back and head. Three weeks later, he died as we have seen. All these events, and many others antecedent, passed through Leonard's mind as he wore out the long hours seated by the side of his dead brother. Never before had he felt so lonely, so utterly desolate, so bankrupt of all love and hope. It was a fact that at this moment he had no friend in the wide world, unless he could call the knob-nosed native otter a friend. He had been many years away from England. His few distant relations there troubled themselves no more about him or his brother, outcasts, wanderers in strange lands, and his school and college companions in all probability had forgotten his existence. There was one, indeed, Jane Beach. But since the night of parting seven years ago, he had heard nothing of her. Twice he had written, but no answer came to his letters. Then he gave up writing, for Leonard was a proud man. Moreover, he guessed that she did not reply because she could not. As he said to his brother, Jane might be dead by now, or more probably married to Mr. Cohen. And yet, once they had loved each other, and to this hour he still loved her, or thought that he did. 
at least through all the weary years of exile, labor, and unceasing search after the unattainable, her image and memory had been with him, a distant dream of sweetness, peace, and beauty, and they were with him yet, though nothing of her remained to him except the parting gift of her prayer book and the lock of hair within it. The wilderness is not a place where men can forget their earliest love. No, he was alone, absolutely and utterly alone, a wanderer in wild lands, a sojourner with rough, unlettered men and savages. And now, what should he do? This place was played out. There was alluvial gold, indeed, but Leonard knew today that it was not in the earth, but in the veins of quartz which permeated the mountains, that the real wealth must be sought for, and how could he extract it from the quartz without machinery or capital? Besides, his kafir servants had deserted him, worn out with hard work and fever, and there were no others to be had at this season. Well, it was only one more disappointment. He must go back to Natal and take his chance. At the worst, he could always earn his living as a transport rider, and at the best, he wearied of this search for wealth which was to build up their family afresh. Then, of a sudden, Leonard remembered what he had promised, to go on seeking till he died. Very good, he would keep the promise. Till he died. And he remembered also that curious prophecy to which Thomas had given utterance on the previous night, that prophecy of wealth which should come to him. <laughs> of course, it was nothing but the distraught fancy of a dying man. For many years his brother had brooded over this possibility of gaining riches, not for their own sake, indeed, but that it might be the means of restoring the ancient family, which their father had brought to shame and ruin. It was not wonderful in a man of his excitable temperament that at the hour of his death he should have grasped at some vision of attainment of the object of his life, though by the hand of another. And yet, how strangely he had looked at him! With what conviction he had spoken! But all this was beside the point. He, Leonard, had sworn an oath many years ago, and only last night he had promised to continue to observe that oath. Therefore, come good or ill, he must pursue it to the end. Thus he mused, till he grew weary as he sat hour after hour by the side of that rigid thing which had been his playmate, his brother, and his friend. From time to time he rose and walked about the cave. As the afternoon waned, the air grew hotter and stiller, while a great cloud gathered on the horizon. There will be thunder at sundown, said Leonard aloud. I wish that Otter would come back so that we might get the funeral over. Otherwise we shall have to wait till tomorrow. At length, about a half an hour before nightfall, the dwarf appeared at the mouth of the cave, looking more like a gnome than a man against the lurid background of the angry sky. A buck was tied across his enormous shoulders, and in his hand he held a large bunch of the fragrant mountain lilies. Then the two of them buried Thomas Outram, there in his lonely grave which he himself had dug by the gully, and the roll of the thunder was his requiem. It seemed a fitting termination to his stormy and laborious life. Well, that was unexpected. 
I have to say that one of the things that really struck me about this whole situation in the two chapters is how familiar death seemed to be to Leonard. For one thing, people were dropping off right and left. The two other guys who'd come with them. And I guess during that time, especially, and under those circumstances, you would see death when they got to the part where he knew that Tom was dying and his breathing was changing and that sort of thing. I was suddenly mentally whisked back to my mother-in-law's deathbed. That was exactly how it was. When I was listening to this, I was like, yep, I know just what you're talking about. And think back then when death was so much more common and definitely happened in the midst of the family a lot more. You would have been so much more familiar with that. So there's just kind of an interesting realization for me. I also was really interested in this whole mystical quality that was brought out during the deathbed scene the gaze far off, the prediction that you will find the money and restore our name, it will be through a woman, the snake that comes out of the thatch but doesn't touch him. It's like he is otherworldly, so the snake is not threatened by him. That was an interesting touch, right? So we also get a touch of foreshadowing maybe that this adventure is not just going to be mundane. There's going to be a supernatural quality coming in somewhere. Listening to it, I discovered a couple of words I didn't mention before, and I had to go look them up because they're not in that Afrikaans dictionary or page or anything. And in fact, I found them in other H. Ryder Haggard books where he'd say, Rimpus, or strips of hide. Carries, or knob stick. So Otter was tied up with strips of hide, and the knob stick is what a carry is. And I also forgot to mention at the beginning, which I kind of meant just to make a standard statement, this was a different time, culturally speaking, and there are going to be some offensive comments made every so often. In the context of the time the author was writing in, these may or may not have actually been offensive. And I would also contend that in the context of the story, we have to see how he's using it. Sometimes we're going to see things that are definitely meant to be offensive, but it depends on who's using it, why they're using it, all that sort of thing. So let's just keep that in mind while we're listening. That's it for this week. Next week, we get into the adventure more. Other than that, I gave you my news at the beginning. And the weather here is gorgeous. I went out this morning for a walk, and it was more what I would call Texas weather. Warm and mild with some humidity in the air. I never thought the day would come when I'd actually welcome that, but there you go. I was welcoming it. Last night, in terms of our own great adventures with the wild outdoors, the dogs were barking in the middle of the night, and we kind of woke up and we were like, shut up, stop it. And as Tom went to sleep, he thought he heard this rustling noise like an animal, and he thought, oh my gosh, those animals in the attic, there must be raccoons or something because it sounds like they're right here in the room with us. <laughs> well, you can see where I'm going with this. Yes, Kaylee, our little hunter, had brought in through the dog door her prize, a pretty good-sized possum that was about a third of her size. I don't know how she did it. Now, this is where we see how possum's evolution 
has really built in a wonderful thing, that whole idea of the possum playing dead, because Kaylee has brought in quite a few animals, squirrels, rats, other delightful things. They've always been dead. She's a terrier, and their instinct is to shake, break that neck. But, you know, these possums, she brings them inside, and they're alive, because they were obviously dead, playing dead at the time. And this poor possum, we got up, drank some coffee, we're reading a little bit, and then he meandered back to the bathroom that's attached to our (laughs) bedroom and came back and went, whoa, you are not going to believe what I found. And sure enough, there's a possum sitting there huddled into a corner looking at us like, oh, crap, please help me. And he said, yeah, that must have been what he heard in the middle of the night. And the two dogs sleep on their beds near our bedroom door. So it was like, well, I can't go there. So I'll find another way out. And then it was backed into a corner. Luckily, we had a great big box. We had a broom. And it was easy to shoo it in there and put it near the bushes where the minute we turned our backs, it dove in. That's not exactly H. Ryder Haggard territory. But when you're living in Dallas in 2014, it's close enough. It enlivened our morning a great deal. And our great hunter, Kaylee, is now out checking the bushes all the time to see where's another thing she can bring in for us. So I hope your weather is good. I hope you're not having brushes with wildlife that make you long for a different way of living. (laughs) And I thank you very much for coming by. I wouldn't be reading this out loud otherwise, and you know I love reading it. So thank you very much. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.